So look, you look, you're looking highly refreshed. Have you been on holiday? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. Very refreshed. Yeah. How was Noosa? Mate, it feels like a very long time ago already. As holidays, you know, that always happens. However, um, mate, I needed a break. It's good to get away and just uh, relax. I've got a young daughter, as you know, so yeah. spend some time with her. And Mate, it's good. How have you been going? Yeah, pretty good. And speaking of getting away, I know I'm sitting here looking at you, but actually mm. my mind is elsewhere. And uh, where I am currently mentally is mm. Mary's Underground, which is the new uh, venue from the boys who took over the basement. And yep. Uh, an iconic Sydney venue which shut I think March last year and has sort of been involved in the discussions around lockout and yeah. revitalisation of Sydney and so forth but happily Jake and Kenny and the crew have taken that space over and it's interesting because it's kind of inspired our next guest who yep. is uh, Josh Pike, the ARIA award winning artist that uh, has been campaigning with me um, around some of these issues because Mary's Underground is all the best things they'd expect of a leading hospitality venue but that's not the point of it it's all about yeah. the music so i think i'm um, really keen to get someone who's got a lot of musical experience played in a lot of venues uh mm. in and um and pick his brain yeah well obviously i wasn't here for this chat um being in noosa on holidays <laughs> however um i think the interesting thing for me thinking about your conversation with him Every time you, you need to see some kind of change, there tends to be a catalyst, like there's one thing to happen that um, finally makes people realise there's a problem, you know? And I think um, uh, basement closing was one of those key factors, key moments where people are like, well, actually, if it's gotten this bad that the basement, an institution has to close, then we've got a real issue. So, yeah. interesting to hear his point of view. Yeah, nothing like a crisis. Correct. So welcome Josh Pike to the back of house Pike cast. Thank you. Very good. Rebranded in favour of your name. Very good. It's uh I think I get a free voucher for a beer at every pub in Sydney because of that, right? Very possibly. Well definitely at this one. We're coming to our audience from the Welcome Hotel in yes. Roselle. And we we're talking earlier, you actually grew up two streets away. I did, yeah. So my uh hit single Middle of the Hill was written about my house that I grew up in as a kid in uh, Rumsey Street, which is just a couple of streets down the road in Roselle. It was sort of Roselle, Balmain, Cusp. Um, but yeah, we lived there in the in the 70s through to the early 80s and then moved over to uh, East Balmain. You've, uh, in true Pike style, taken us in a direction... That I wanted it to go. <laughs> I was also intending on going, but just in reverse order. Oh, great. I, did, like, I was interested in that, actually, like... Um, that song and the story behind it and where it was geographically like and you know is it about your childhood or growing up or yeah so we 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 uh i was born in that house we we lived in rumsey street uh which was uh i was born in 77 so this was you know in the in the late 70s when balmain was really <clears throat> a pretty pretty kind of rough place really um, old, you know, traditional Dockers kind of area. And we lived um, just up above the uh, coal loaders there. And so when my, my dad, who was an architect, um, renovated our house, when he took the ceiling out, just all this coal dust fell out. It was a, it was a old uh, worker's cottage um, that he put a top floor on, which then suddenly had a view of the Harbour Bridge. <laughs> it was awesome. So, yeah, that's where we grew up. Um, and then eventually, oh, and that was at, actually at, uh, on the same street as the 
what's the the pub called? The Bald Rock Hotel. Yeah, right. So that's where my dad went down there a few times as a as a young dad to have a beer in the evening, and he came back and he was like, I "Can't go back there. It's full of criminals. Can't can't ever go back there." It was a pretty rough time. And so then you moved elsewhere in the peninsula. Yes, the Insular Peninsula. We never left. We moved down to East Balmain then, um, down to Nicholson Street, just opposite Nicholson Street School. And it was, yeah, it was an absolutely idyllic childhood, you know, like we grew up, you know, going out on the harbour and like jumping off the wharf into the into the water in the harbour and swimming out to the, the dolphins on the, not actual physical mammalian dolphins, but the uh, little docks out in the water. It was killer. Loved it. And so, I guess, like, that's been a pretty, one of your more popular songs, you'd say, right? And, or... Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, well, I mean, in terms of my, you know, the inception of my career, that was the first song that kind of got some traction and really kind of broke out on Triple J. And I remember it came out and I played the big day out that year and I expected, I played on one of the smaller stages and I expected, you know, <clears throat> maybe 100 people to show up and it was... It just the people kept on streaming in. I, I literally almost thought there was a mistake and somebody had sort of billed me incorrectly. Um, and I was, yeah, from yeah, yeah, from there it was it was all on. It was great. Yeah, because um, like it, 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 we'll come to it later, I guess. But like it's, um, you know, it's like uh, and how, partly how we've connected, I guess, in the last year has been about you know changes in Sydney's nightlife and things like this, and you know, um, live music sort of pretty front and centre in some of the debate and. A, lot, a large number of our um, listeners are, you know, in the game of um, venues, you know. So um, I think we'll come and talk about about the place of live music. But um, before we before we get there, I, you know, like uh, just familiarise listeners with perhaps your uh, history in hospitality, if you do have one. I mean, I do. I do have a history in hospitality. I think all you know, a lot of musicians do. Um, my first experience with hospitality was working as a glassy at um, the Bacardi Club at the barracks, the, the Sydney barracks over um, New Year's. And I did that two years in a row and I got um, promoted to bar runner, which was very exciting. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it's a classic. I mean, all people that have worked in hospitality will remember, the, will, will appreciate that kind of sense of manic kind of camaraderie and it's like it's you against the patrons in a way but in a you know not in a not in a violent way um but you know it's like it's you're you're there to work and then and I remember working on that new year's eve the first time and my friends came to the came to the gate and they were out getting smashed and going out to clubs and stuff and I was working and it was that it's it's a sort of feeling that I've held with me when I go on tour and stuff as well. You know, you're always a little bit separate. It's the same being a performer, you know, mm. you're always a little bit separate from the punters. Um, it's kind of like being this, like, military operation in a way, except that you also drink and then, you know, have fun. Um, but, it, yeah, it was great. It was, it was actually a great time and the camaraderie and, you know, finishing up the your your night's work as the sun's coming up and, you know, we had to literally pick up all the cigarette butts from the gravel on the floor, you know, and that kind of stuff. But it was, yeah, it was good times. And then for many years I worked at Manning Bar at Sydney Uni. There you um, go. Which was, uh, I wasn't uh, working the bar, but I worked in production there. So I was, worked all the events, um, did a bit of event management um, and I actually think that I wrote their OH&S um, their OHNS um, manual, 
Because I was studying event management at the time. Yeah. yeah, right. Do you think it's still in usage? I don't know. It was pretty good, though. It was pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I worked in production there and did like sound and was basically a roadie for all these bands coming through. So many, many, many hours spent at, in uh, hospitality venues. Um, and of course, that's continued by being a touring musician. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think um, from my perspective, in some of the debates around creativity, you know, there's like, what is a creative? Is like a chef a creative? Mm, um, I absolutely. Mean, it's not, not sort of like often thought about in that way, but like, uh, you know, you can see, and particularly uh, um, in the work that we do at Time Out, like the level of creativity that goes between the things. And obviously, like, the connection then between hospitality on the one side and, and artists and creatives on the other. Oh, yeah. I, I think creativity is, you know, I mean, it's hard to define and it's hard to refine what it actually means, um, but it's becoming more and more important is the the capacity to think outside the box. And I remember when my first kid was going to preschool and I met a one a fellow parent in the, in the, in the you know, small playground and she turned out to be a... Um, a fan, but also a uh, really successful television producer and author and all this kind right. of stuff. And I was like, wow, I want to do what you do. Like, you, you just sort of get paid to have creative ideas. And she was like, that's what you get to do. You know, like, you should stop thinking of yourself as a musician and think of yourself as a creative. And it really stuck with me. And I, I kind of think that way about anybody that's involved in careers where they are expressing their creativity and it's absolutely chefs and just entrepreneurs in general and small business owners like you have to be creative constantly and kind of relentlessly creative to push your business forward. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that kind of, you know, fusion um, between where I think we can see visibly hospitality and music coming together at the moment and doffing my hat to the fine work uh, you've done with Young Henry's in... Oh, yeah. Bottling up the sea breeze maybe, hey? Yes, and putting it into a, yeah. into a little bottle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was a collaboration. So we're talking about a beer that I did in collaboration with Young Henry's called The Summer. Um, and that was just a great opportunity. I'm, I'm always like, as a musician, I'm always thinking of different ways to market myself and to, you know, like Australia realistically is a really small market, you know, like mm. what have we got, 23 million or something in the country. Uh, you can't just kind of keep touring, doing the same thing over and over again. So I had an idea a few years ago. I'm a, I'm a, I haven't for a little while, but I was a really keen home brewer um, for, for years, dating back to my teenage years when, you know, I, I, I was like... Before, before 18 or...? Definitely. I was 14. I was like, wow, I can't go and buy a beer, but I could go to Woolies and buy a, buy a, <laughs> buy a homebrew kit. And <laughs> Found a it. loophole. Yeah. Um, and I'd make homebrew in the sort of two hours before my parents would come home from work and store them up in my bedroom cupboards. And then I got busted because the bottles started exploding. But that's another story. Um, but so I was a keen home brewer. And, I, and over a, a, a couple of years, I developed this, um, this, you know, it was a pretty, it was a sessionable sort of lager, I guess. Um, and it was, uh, and I called it the summer. And it was like roasted coriander seeds, bit of lemon zest, uh, and then just a kind of like sessiony kind of base. Beer, and so I'd I'd been making that at home for a couple of years. Re- was really enjoying it, and then I thought it would be cool to um, partner up with a, a a brewery and and make it sort of not commercially, but as a as a one off kind of thing to um, coincide with the tour that I was doing. So Young Henry's, I'd I'd loved their beer for a long time, and I had various connections through through Oscar in the music industry, um, and so we approached them, and they were super keen on it. We re- refined the um, the brew. 
Uh, and I went in and we, we created an event where um, we also hooked up with um, Grow, Grow It Local, which was actually Jess Scully's thing for a while. Um, and so we had people in the community to bring in lemons from their backyards and we had a big lemon zesting session and I played a couple of songs and, and then we created this beer and we made, I think we made 80 kegs of it. Mm. And we, t- we basically toured it. So wherever, wherever I was on tour around the country, we'd try and get that beer stocked at the venue or in, you know, venues close, close around it. So it was, it was actually, uh, it, was, it was reasonably difficult because a lot of venues had like sort of, you know, um, deals with... Or porridge deals exactly. or exclusive tap deals, yeah. Uh, but for instance, the, the, uh, the venue that we played at in um, Brisbane... Um, stocked it on site and it was it was awesome. So it was really cool. It was just a cool little thing to what, do. What, when was that? What year was that? Roughly? That would have been probably 2016, I reckon. Yeah, because like I guess um, the thing with collaborations is that they've become, well, I would not say run of the mill, but like it's you know that there's been a proliferation. No, you're, you're right, Mike. Yeah. I'm a trailblazer. You're right. <laughs> I, I'm reading between the lines. Yeah, look, you know. I like what you're saying. No, yeah. but what I do like about it is that, like it's it's. Um, Forward well, thinking, no, innovative. No. Well, yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> um, I'm glad that I'm on your podcast here. It's, uh, but like, it's, uh, <laughs> no, but it's like this thing about, I, I guess, uh, so not one of these overused words, authenticity, but like there's, if there's a genuine story or a genuine belief in something. And the thing is, um, and I am, you know, local to Young Henry's geographically where I live and have been around that brewery for a long time. I know the guys, like it's their story as much as it was yours in terms of... Exactly, yeah. Well, Oscar in particular, but also Rich, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've known their story, you know, very well and they've always been associated with the music industry and a friend of mine, good friend Jack Carty, who's a musician, used to work um, at the Roxbury in in Glebe when Mm. he was working the bar with Oscar. When Richard when just Richard turned in. up, yeah, yeah, and so you know, in the music community, we we know that that brand very well and fondly, and they support music all the time. Like they they have events, and um, it's a truly co- collaborative thing. So it's it was kind of a no brainer to work with them, but it was also like a sort of uh, an acknowledgement of people just as you say, like engaging in authentic opportunities to collaborate. Like I think that's you know. I wanted to do a beer, but it, it, I, it would have been a cynical thing if I just said I want to do a beer. You know, like well, for me anyway. I, the fact that I'd been brewing for years at home made it to me seem like an authentic thing. Yeah. I think that's why it was you know yeah, quite yeah. a good little project. Yeah, and and just deviating away slightly from that into uh, just back, you know, I guess to basically to venues and um, you know, in, in my in my work, I find it hard sometimes to. Uh, enjoy a venue because you're sitting there over analyzing, yeah, know, wondering <laughs> the food and the drink yeah, and the yeah. lighting and so forth. Like, I guess, um, from your perspective as a working muso, do you struggle or enjoy that? Like, if, if, if we're sitting in a bar, are you is you is half your ear on the playlist? Oh, 100%. Uh, it's not, not so much on the playlist, but if, when I'm at a venue, um, particularly smaller venues where the production's not necessarily great, I'm often frustrated by like you know frequencies that I'm hearing that shouldn't be there or I, re- I really get obsessed with with venues that are too echoey when I know that you could just put up some acoustic paneling on the ceiling and and stop that so that that's actually one thing that bugs me a lot I, I think I have sort of you know maybe a, some kind of issue with aud- auditory um, like oversensitivity or something like that but 
but yeah, often in dining rooms, you know, vent, you know, restaurant dining rooms, when when it's too echoey and there's a real high frequency kind of thing happening, that bugs me, and I just think, oh, like, this could be fixed really easily, you know. Um, so yeah, there's stuff like that. I definitely have a. I've been in so many venues and pubs, and over the years that. I can kind of have that Malcolm Gladwell blink thing where you walk in, you're like, oh, this is going to be shit, this is going to be good, you know. Yeah, I'd imagine that would be the case. And it's interesting for me, and I think our listeners might find it useful, like, to, if there is, like, some crib notes like that, you know, so things that can be easily fixed. And and, and part of the reason I want to sort of take the discussion in this direction is that um, along with the revitalisation of Sydney or cities just generally and, uh, you know, we're on the eve of a federal election tomorrow. Both sides um, have committed to 30 million bucks to invest in the music industry across a range of initiatives. Um, so, and in, in Sydney, let's be Sydney specific because of the work we've been doing to try and get it going again. There is focus on live music. There is city grants coming for, you know, venues that take on live music. So what what I can see happening is venues that weren't designed mm. uh, to have live music and will now start, you know, trying to do it. And um, how do they go about their sound in that situation, you know? Like that's the sort of... Well, I mean, in 2019 it's way easier than it was 20 years ago, you know, or even, you know, when I started sort of playing regularly around venues, you know, PAs used to be massive and, you know, cumbersome things. And now we have things like line array systems for, for PAs and digital mixing consoles that have built-in amplifiers and built-in effects and all that kind of stuff. So you can you can get a pretty good live system going for, you know, 20 grand, definitely, definitely, you know, like a, a pretty good operating system. So that's that's one thing, but it's more the treatment of the room that is always going to be the... This, this is the same thing with studio stuff as well. You know, you can buy gear pretty relatively cheaply, but it's it's the actual room, the physical structure of the room that makes a difference. And, you know, like there's been many, many times when I've been on tour, out at, particularly out at regional venues, when we'll go in and be like, why is the stage in that in that corner? Like that's like the line of sight's shit... People are going to have to walk across there to get to the bar. People are going to have to walk across the front of the stage to get to the toilet. Um, the the PA is like there's there's no way that the throw can reach anything but like just above people's heads, which means right. that the high end is going to really annoy them. Uh, and so we'll often go in, and my my long term um, sound guy and tour manager Dave Springer will like go. If we can, why don't we move the stage over there? And it's usually just a, a you know movable stage. Um, and there's been like many occasions when they'll be like, oh, wow, why didn't we ever think of that? They'll move the stage and then they'll keep it there. So it's things like, you know, line of sight is a massive thing, the throw of the speakers, like I said, and access to the bar and the toilets. Like you don't want to be playing a gig and have a stream of people having to cross the front of the stage to get to the loo. That's just, you know, little. it's common sense shit. And then in terms of actual sound, um, most of that is just making the room as dead as possible really yeah like so you know it can it can be just furniture it doesn't have to be like really expensive baffles and stuff like that it can just be soft furnishings in the room some drapes across hard surfaces stuff like that that you can you know move again when you when you just want it to be the dining room or whatever and and talking about venues uh in terms of at any time in your career like and i suppose outside let's split into two categories like uh purpose-built venues or performance spaces like Mm -hmm. um and 
I guess, uh, pubs or um, clubs kind of stuff. Like, is there any favourites that you've developed over the years or played in? Um, well, I mean, in terms of purpose-built ones, I mean, I've played, I reckon I've played pretty much every venue in the country. Um, and there's, you know, amazing places like the, the Enmore is incredible. But in terms of vibe, I've just, like, the Metro, you just can't, I just love the Metro. Like, the, the first, I when I was, you know, a teenager, I remember thinking, wow, if I could ever play the Metro, that'd be amazing. And then I just never got the opportunity to play it until I headlined it. And it was one of the most incredible, I still remember it. It was like a visceral, like I walked on stage and it was sold out. We sold out two nights in a row and it was just like a, a palpable physical force, you know, and it was, it was definitely one of my career highlights. The Opera House is incredible as well, playing venues like that. Um, you know, Sydney Recital Hall is incredible, but all, all of them, like the Lansdowne is one of my favourite venues at the moment. I've seen a couple of bands there recently, Augie March and um, Sandy Alex G, and just loved... Is that upstairs or downstairs? Or the upstairs, downstairs, yeah, yeah. And I, and I played there years ago, you know, when I was in a punk band, you know, sort of 20 years ago, and we played there several times when it was the stage was downstairs. It was a great venue then as well, and then it kind of, you know, dropped off and has come back strong now. Um, but yeah, I love that venue. You know, yeah, there's 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 some great venues in, in in Sydney. But every year it gets a little bit harder to get back to that feeling of when we were 15. We could jump in the river upstream and let the current carry us to the beginning where the river met the sea again. And all the days were a sun-drenched haze while the salt spray crusted on the window pane. With hospitality uh, professionals, if I can use that term. In my experience, and either it's because they just love a junket, or um, it is genuinely the case. There is normally a good number of them in the Qantas lounge, headed overseas <laughs> on research missions. You right. know, like uh, I know some of our regular guests uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Adam Tripsniff, Tim Condon, and Tim Fishwick. If you're listening, they, um, you know, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm flying off to do some research in the US around a new hospitality concept. Like, from a music perspective um, and in terms of, um, you know, where you get new inspirational thoughts or whatever, is it like that for you uh, as an artist or, like, just, uh, in, the, just in the garden, picking up a blade of grass? Yeah, no, for me, I mean, in terms of songwriting, it has to always come from a um, completely detached uh, place. Like, it can't come from a being inspired by another artist kind of thing, lyrically and conceptually, it just needs to come from whatever is happening in my life. It's always been like that. It's not, you know, when I do co-writing and stuff with other artists, it can be, we can sort of be more referential, I guess, and say like, well, let's maybe try and write a song like this or this. But when it's for my own, you know, solo stuff, it just has to come naturally. And it is literally like waiting for lightning to strike. And you just kind of, over the years, I've learned to you know, the sort of things that I need to do to put myself in a position where lightning might strike, but um, mm. it's still very much just a kind of waiting around. Like what, what's an example of that? Like, uh... Well, it's, for me, it's just like, you know, not being stressed, you know, or, or actually that's, that's not even true because it's, sometimes it's the stress that makes those. It's basically just being open to the universe, as hippy-dippy as that sounds. It's just basically being open to ideas, you know. So it could be like, you know, you go out and, have an inspirational conversation and then something about that makes you think of something else. It's also writing everything down and then like going back and looking at those notes and cherry picking, you know, little verses or little sayings or whatever. But in terms of production, so the actual sort of aesthetic sensibility of the music, 
that is very much a research thing. So like I'll I'll spend hours on the internet researching how other artists record and you know like the technical stuff. I'm a big geek over, so I'll, I really love you know finding out about microphones and you know preamps and even like synthesizer stuff. Not that my music's particularly synthesizer heavy. Um, drum sounds, miking techniques, and all that kind of stuff. So in terms of the actual inspiration, it's definitely got to be an organic kind of comes out of nowhere thing or an indefinable place. Um, but yeah, technically and sort of production-wise, that's, um, yeah, I would say it would be the same as your mates going to different restaurants and bars around the world. It's like, yeah, going to going to gigs and going to studios. I love, I love just hanging out in studios and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah um, bars at night, like talking with inspirational bartenders, you know, <laughs> or, or, or fellow patrons. It's just how we met, actually. Like we, uh, It is, we, um, yes. We got into a bit of a... A oh, fight, a fight, a big fight. Yeah, but it was um, like a, a venue uh, in Enmore. Uh, I think it was Jacoby's, wasn't it, the Tiki Bar there? Yes, right? it was, uh, yeah. And I'd, I'd come from a, a friend of mine who I mentioned earlier, Jack Cardi, who he, he had a gig at um, Camelot's. And I'd been there and we went to Jacoby's to, to have a drink afterwards and, and that's when I met you <laughs> that, that fateful night. But, uh, and one of the things we've been talking about and was... I guess, and I'd been, I guess, trying to get my head around what were actually issues around the music scene versus what was, you know, politics and, um, you know, vitriol from stakeholders, you know, and uh, and you'd just been, I think, in Marrickville, like Camelot, was it? Or Camelot's, yeah. yeah, Marrickville down the bottom. Yeah, and, you know, the discussion was like, well, actually live music is alive and well, you just got to know where to find it would be your summation, I think, as a sort of your position. And mine was, well, that may be well, but we're making it too bloody hard. Like, yeah. it's just too... Well, I think I think there's two issues there. There's the there's the bureaucracy involved and the, you know, the, the sort of perspective from a, a bar owner or a venue owner's point of view and then there's the perspective from a punter. Well, I guess there's three three points of view and also from a musician's point of view. And you know, I've been I've been doing this for 25 years, you know, really, um, in terms of playing at pubs and clubs, and and then slowly transitioning into it being a profession. Uh, and my my feeling is that you know, you know, ever since the from the from the 90s, we had venue closures and we had uh, you know club closures and all this kind of stuff, and 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 curfews and all this kind of stuff. But there was always a way, like musicians, from a musician's point of view, we always found a way to perform, like whether it was illegal raves or illegal venues. And punters would always find a way to go and enjoy those things. Again, usually potentially illegally, but whatever. Um, so obviously, you know, changing bureaucracy to make, to cut red tape and have, uh, you know, a live music scene more similar to, to Melbourne, for instance, or like you know London or whatever, yeah, sure. you know Berlin would be would be preferable. But I think, I mean, it's hard to actually remember what we were talking about that night because it was very late. But but you know what I think I was saying is that there are definitely issues with Sydney, but we still find a way to make it good. And I know that I can go out any night of the week and see a band somewhere. Um, I don't want it to be hard for the venue owners to to make that possible for punters and for musicians. And so that's why I've thrown my weight behind issues about, you know, lockout laws and, and stuff like that. But I, I guess I guess I'm just a bit more of an optimist in the sense that I think that 
there'll always be a way for musicians um, and punters to enjoy live music, whether it's house concerts or other ways to do it. We'll always find a way. So, you know, it's it's kind of like the the thing, you know, are we going to innovate a way out of trouble or are we just going to roll over and die? And I, I think we always innovate a way out of trouble. Yeah, and it's like it's a pretty well understood concept in creativity generally like a... Uh, um, adversity tends to breed innovation in a way where exactly. like, abundance doesn't um, and, you know, complacency sort of can supersede, um, you, you know, innovation in that, in that sense. N- not to say that I don't want it to be easier. I mean, I think, you know, like I've been an uh, ambassador for APRA for, you know, 15 years or something and, you know, for a long, long time APRA have been trying to get a, 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 a like a tax rebate system for equipment for venues and stuff like that and I'm totally behind that. Um, you know, there are so many things that I'm behind in terms of, you know, I, I, you know, like lockout laws I'm against. I think we should, small bars should be able to have um, entertainment. Small bar licenses should be cheaper. I'm totally all for that as well. Like I'm 100% advocating for all these changes that we all know would be good. The, the flip side is that the undercurrent, the bubbling undercurrent of creativity is always going to be there and people are always going to be producing this stuff and there will always be punters, you know, willing to go there. But, yeah, it just seems stupid that we don't have less of a barrier for those things to to happen, I guess. And, like, this is pretty specific to music um, now in in that whichever side wins tomorrow and when people uh, are listening to this, they'll know. Uh, There's a commitment by federal government um, to plough 30 million bucks, as I mentioned, into... Music. Um, I think that the Libs and Match Labor's breakdown, but it's um, Sounds Australia. They're going to stick ten million into export um, and live music, um, community music hubs. A big chunk of change there, five million, and then youth music seven point five million. Mental health and music four point two million, and then new recordings, music manager support, and, mu- and a music teacher award. Like, what's your sort of all good stuff, or is it like it's all good stuff? I mean, I've been like involved in all this stuff behind the scenes for years and years and years. I'm a board member for PPCA, which, you know, funds grants for um, uh, musicians through Oz Council. I personally run a grant myself called the JP Partnership where it's seven and, a half, seven and a half grand in mentorship for an emerging artist, which I've been running for six years now. Um, you know, we need more and more. I think we're the most underfunded country, you know, well, I, we might not be the most, but we're, we're a heavily underfunded country in terms of arts grants. And the reality is that the average Joe on the street doesn't necessarily value art and culture, but I guarantee that if it was gone, they would be bereft, you know? And so it's, 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 absolute, it's completely the responsibility of the government to be leading the way with these things because the average punter doesn't generally know what it is that they... I know, I know this sounds arrogant, but they, you know, I mean, I, I think hospitality people would feel the same. The average punter doesn't necessarily know what they want. They just like it when they see it. And they absolutely want to be able to go to a bar and they absolutely want yeah. to have the choice to go and see a yeah. band and they want they want music and art and culture and comedy. And, and there's also that know. thing of the difference between using beer as an analogy and we're sitting here drinking some fine, fine Aussie craft beer, but the it's delicious. and it's delicious. But here's the thing: twenty years ago, we wouldn't have realised it because it wasn't an option, and yeah. innovators had to come and get that to the surface. And it, and now it's understood, you know. And that uh, the thing that uh, strikes me and partly motivates me around some of my own uh, activism or nonsense is 
some people call it, is like just the importance of making sure that that Australian children, our kids, listen to songs about from by Australian artists. Oh, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. There's no shortage of music um, globally, and with streaming and whatever, um, everything's accessible. But you need these stories told, and like you know, some of the things that struck me a bit about. And I want to come back and talk about your grant program in a second, your personal one. But like, you know, it's like Alex the astronaut, you know, who was sort of involved in some of this stuff, and you know, some of her songwriting very specific to mm. social issues facing you know young audiences in particular around yeah. um, you know, sexuality and yeah, everything. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and uh, and all that is um, you know how like we edu- educate our kids in a sense. You know, it is, and 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 you know, there's an, there's an argument that's often been thrown forward, which is that artists will always create art regardless of whether or not they can make a living, regardless of whether or not there's a place for them to play. That's true because the the creative compulsion is strong, right? But why would we have a society that makes it hard for for these people? And you look at New Zealand, you know, New Zealand's a really progressive um, artistic country. Like they, they have a system there where it's sort of like work for the doll um, and you can actually be, as long as you are proving, you know, through, um, you know, how receipts and, you know, invoices to that you are a performing musician, you, you can you can get a allowance from the government to continue to being a performing musician. And the a big change that I've seen in, with, you know, New Zealand in particular is back in the day, it was like you would go from, you know, Crowded House is a good example, you'd go from New Zealand to Australia. That was the progression. Now they just bypass Australia and go straight to America. And Australia does not have a reputation internationally as a super progressive creative country. And that's a big shame because we have incredible creatives here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, people like APRA do, you know, the company APRA uh, and PBCA do amazing stuff in terms of trying to, um, you know, support artists but it really needs to come from from government so it's it's great that they're promising these things whether or not they do them you know it's the reality is creativity in this country is never going to be as as much of a voting issue as tax reform and stuff like that and yeah. so it's it's yeah. hard to get it across the line yeah yeah and like i guess um you know the other side of that too is just and i think like craft beer is a useful one because there's a job for media in in helping educate public about the value of something and that's sort of one of the things that we've been trying to do at both time out and through the nighttime industry association work that we do um i want to uh jump back a bit um and just ask you a bit about um you know specific songwriting actually like uh which is um and and sort of listeners don't understand like when i ran into josh we got to talking and then i roped him into um, helping lead a, a fundraising gig um, at, at the Metro. I feel good yeah, that yeah. it was your favourite venue now. Like, uh, oh, at least you landed it there. Um, but it was pretty stressful for a time, as you recall. Um, but uh, oh, you know, I just remember. trying to just oh, trying to make it, <laughs> just trying to make it make it um, happen. But um, you know, and in that, I kind of like started listening to a lot of music. And there's one song in particular I want to ask you about, which is "Make You Happy," um, because it's uh, one that. I've grown to like and love. And, oh, that's you know, great. Yeah, yeah, good to know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. My wife's was a massive, challenge. It was a my, challenge. My wife's a massive fan. <laughs> I think I was saying, like, um, it's like, it just gets into your head, this stuff, you know. It's good. That's <laughs> what the kids like. But, like, what's the inspiration behind that one? Like, and who's it about? Anyway, oh, well, that, that song in particular, you know, it sounds like a happy song, um, but it's actually completely the opposite, which is generally the case with my music. It's like, it may sound happy, but it's all born from a 
Dark place. Dark place. Uh, I may seem like a cheerful guy, but I have my demons. But, um, I mean, that song, you know, came about, that was on my second album, and the first album had gone really well. And, um, you know, it had gone gold, and, you know, I had this career all of a sudden after, you know, I was 27 when I got my first record deal, so it had been a full 10 years after high school of figuring out, you know, working in hospitality, like I said, and doing many other things, being a truck driver and stuff like this. Um so it had taken a long time, and so when the first album went well and I had this career, I was like, "Wow, I should be I should be happy, right?" And I just wasn't happy for some reason. Um, and so the song was like, is basically about kind of trying to get my head around what it is that actually makes me happy. And I th- when I, the the line of the chorus, which says, "I have no need for such things, but to make you happy," was I was camping with my wife, my, my now wife, she's my girlfriend at the time, um, which makes her my ex girlfriend, I guess. But, um, <laughs> But um, we were camping down the coast and it was, you know, sunrise and I found this beautiful polished stone that had been polished by the sea and I handed it to her and I said, I have no need for these things but to make you happy, you know. And I was like, it's, it's true, you know, all this shit that I've been going through for the last 10 years to try and get to a point where I can make a living out of music, what I actually, all I actually need is love and, you know, I mean, it sounds extremely simple, but yeah, all you, all you actually need is is love and the support of somebody that understands you. And and in that moment, I I felt like I'd found that. And so that's that's basically what the song is about. It's definitely not. Uh, it wasn't. Oh, and actually, a fun fact about that song is for for me, for a long time when I had the um the uh, <laughs> I had the song pretty much written except for there's this little refrain which says, "And if you keep me on the left, can I keep you on the right?" For years and years. Well, not not for years and years. For for a few months when I'd written the song. I had this whole placeholder lyrics, which was, and tell me what comes first, is it the chicken and the egg? <laughs> and I had that for ages. And then I was walking up the stairs at this hotel in, in Scotland one night after touring. And I had this sudden, I was talking to my violinist, violinist Jason at the time. Um, and we were talking, as we often did, about philosophical shit. And I remembered a uh, social anthropology lecture that I'd been to when I briefly went to uni before dropping out where it talked about how in many societies women are on the left and men are on the right and it's just this weird thing. And so that's where that lyric came from. I remember walking up the stairs of this hotel and thinking that would be a better lyric than the chicken or the egg lyric. And uh, I don't know if it is. And, and in, I don't know and if it is. And, and in, um, in your household, is that honoured in the bedroom, left Actually, and right? Well, I, well this is the thing that I've... Depends the way you're looking at the bed. Exactly. <laughs> I've, I've come to realise that... In, in later years, it depends if you're lying in the bed or looking down in the bed, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Either way, I'm right, right? <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. That's a good song, I like it. When I was a kid, I grew up in a house on a hill Not the top, not the bottom, but the middle And I still remember where I cracked my head In the vacant lot, there's a row of tiny houses there now And we used to light fires in the gutters And I could cool my head on the car So, we've been chatting now enjoying the odd beer or two on a fantastic afternoon here in the peninsula. and uh, The insular peninsula. The insular peninsula, and I've got to be honest, I've been getting urges late at night. Oh. Uh, and um, I've got to um, tell you about a recent night in the pub at the Cricketers' Arms where oh, yeah. it was packed with people from the peninsula uh, um, trying to work out how to, you know, get, get the vibe back mm. on the strip and... In Balmain, and you know, as someone who grew up in the area, and I think like it's an evident in your music, and you know, just uh, almost everything. Um, 
that, that this was formative, you know, this, this it was, environment was formative. It was... It, it was everything. Like, I, I mean, I literally, this is no joke, I, ne- I had never even been to the eastern suburbs until university because I just, like, the, as far with the, we would go as far as the city and that was it. And then we'd get the ferry or the bus home to Balmain. And I remember, like, on my 18th birthday going out to um, the basement for, uh, for, my, for my birthday. Like, you know, that was the first time. Well, I mean, I'd been going to pubs for, for years, to be honest, but um, going to this... Jazz venue was my birthday thing, and I, I was like, "This is this is fine. This is the city's cool." And then we left and came back to the, to Balmain. I was like, "Yes, I feel at home." So Balmain was incredibly vibrant. I lived in East Balmain, as I mentioned earlier, and we had from from my street, we had the Commercial Hotel, which went on to become a Bavarian beer cafe or something like that, or beer pub down down in East Balmain. And then we had then we had the Balmain Bowling Club, which was killer. Like we we spent. Many a lot a lot of time there, and then you go up and you had the London, and then you had uh, what was so the Cricketers Arms was the Monkey Bar for a long That's time. That's right, right, yeah. Indeed. So it was it was always the Cricketers Arms when I was a kid. Yeah, but you they had the Cricketers the Arms, flipped. and then you had the Unity, and then you had Dicks, uh, and then you know Welcome, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all the way up to the. Um, you know the what's it called the one on uh, the corner of Victoria Road and uh, with the oh the bridge. the bridge. So you'd go yeah. up to the bridge, yep. uh, and then that would that would close down at some point, and you'd make your way back to the Unity, and then that would be the end of the night. <laughs> that, that was like they had a I think they had a, like a four a.m. license or something when I was growing up. It was it was always every weekend that was that was all that we was did. The thing. And you had um, you know you had the, the the commercial which was really friendly. We did we used to do the pool comps all over Balmain as well. So every Wednesday night, this is from the time we were like sixteen. Luckily, I always had a beard, <laughs> so I was always able to get in. But so we go to the the pool comps all around the suburb, all around the peninsula. And a friend of mine, Will, was really good. We, we always win, ended up winning a case or whatever. Um, but the, the commercial was this really friendly kind of home pub. Um, the you know the bowling club was like pretty rough and weird, but it was it was a cool place to go. The Unity was super rough, but it had this like weird nightclub upstairs later on in in, in my adolescence. So we had a nightclub. The uh, the Cat and Fiddle had really good music, like had contemporary yep. you know bands and stuff. I remember going to see Ben Lee play there and. And you know Holly Throsby came up through the ranks playing there, as did as did I. Uh, and then you could go up to the to the bridge and see like you know pretty big name acts back in the day. Um, and so it was like it was incredible. I mean, you could you didn't need to leave. So it was very very vibrant and and it, it also felt incredibly safe. I've got to say. Yeah, and it was like a, a beacon to attract people like myself in from outside the area. You know, I grew up up in Liverpool uh, and. Uh, you know, we'd come to Balmain or um, not all the time, but, you know, just yeah. because it had this kind of buzz about it. And and uh, it's uh, relevant because there's, you know, obviously, you know, arguably it's been a, a cradle of music talent for the state and maybe the country. You might opine oh, on that. I mean, I've definitely. There's been so many musicians and artists that have come through Balmain, you know, but it's always you have to sort of look at it from a, kind of bird's eye view and whether or not that was the fact that there was lots of pubs or whether or not that was because Balmain was a, a place where kind of bohemian baby boomers moved when they didn't have very much money. Yeah, or maybe both. Or maybe both, yeah. yeah. And, like, I guess it's this, um, you know, it's a bit of a trite debate sometimes, but the pokies versus, you know, band room stuff and, like, um, you know, there's 
a good number of bam rooms in in the peninsula, like at least uh, anecdotally been replaced, you know, with with pokies and. Um, but you know, even even back in the day, there was always pokies. At, yeah. I mean, this is the th- I think this is the thing where, you know, maybe I'm a optimist or I don't know, but like this is a, a thing that you and I seem to often not clash, but like yeah. kind of debate debate. Um, is you know the cat and fiddle was uh, the place for for bands in Balmain, but they always had a pokey room, and the the Balmain Bowling Club was the place to go for yeah. really cheap beers for for young people. You know, I mean, admittedly, I remember walking past them when I was fourteen, and all the year twelves from my school were in there, right? And I was like, that's the place you go. Really subsidized, cheap subsidized beers, massive pokey room. Yeah. So I'm I'm against pokies. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying like people always find a way to yeah. exist. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, sorry, my point being, it's a simplistic analysis to say you know this has replaced that. That's yeah, not, yeah. Not, I mean, it's oh, like you think, you remember yeah. the Annandale, like yeah. the Rule Brothers. You know, like I launched my first uh, single at the Annandale, and it was a complete icon and a complete career pinnacle for me to have performed there. And they had a massive poker room to the side. I mean, things can coexist. It's, yeah. it's about doing them tastefully and, you know, and, and sort of... I, I don't like pokies, personally, because I, I don't like mindless gambling and, and pensioners wasting their money on stuff like that. But at the same time, I understand, you know, a proprietor's need to yeah, make money. Yeah. So. yeah, like, and, you know, as a son of um, Balmain, shall we say, like, if you had a, a, a magic wand... I could wave it. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you do? Like, you know, uh, well, to be honest, like I don't come to Balmain much at all. I live in in Dulwichil now in the inner west, and I don't. My my parents moved out of Balmain a few years ago. Granted, to just to Roselle, <laughs> <laughs> escaped, did they? Yeah. But Balmain honestly reminds me of Mossman now. You know, it's like it's got all these sort of you know franchised um, big name retail shops down the strip and. And the demographic has changed enormously, and that's just that's life. You know, it's like it's a very uh, affluent suburb where it wasn't when I was a kid. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, we would my all my friends were teased and called the Balmanians, and we were known as the rich kids. And we were like, we're not like all our parents are like you know government employees, you know, like. <laughs> but but you know, obviously, property changed everything yeah, for for baby yeah. boomers in in the in the peninsula. So that has gone on and Balmain to me is unrecognisable. So if I had a magic wand, you know, I, I don't know that I would change it back to what it was anyway because life moves on. And the the interesting thing about demographics and, you know, culture within a city is that, you know, one thing becomes something, like Balmain has become a very gentrified area and then everybody moves to another area and then gentrifies that area. And so yeah, yeah. definitely my area, Dulwich Hill, Summer, Summer Hill, Marrickville, has sort of become what Balmain was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, and I was having a coffee in, in Summer Hill this morning after dropping my kids off and it just reminded me so much of Balmain, um, you know, 20 years ago where there's a community and there's like a sort of local town square and everyone has pizza at this one pizza joint. But already there's a couple of small bars have opened up in Summer Hill, which are really cool and really good and tasteful. Uh, but it is absolutely becoming more gentrified. And my wife and I was were wondering, you know, what Summer Hill will, will be like in 20 years and if it'll become the next sort of, you know, 
in in a West Mossman, so to speak, you know. Yeah, like it's one of these things, isn't it? Like there's the places evolve. This is the this is this is, this is the thing, and then um, and uh, it's uh, and especially around these debates, it's kind of what are we reaching back in time for exactly? Well, that, that's that's exactly right. And I, I just sorry to interrupt you, but it's like it is it is uh, a bit of a thing of the market will drive what happens, right? And I'm not, I don't. I don't I feel myself torn sometimes because, you know, part of me as a musician and an artist, you know, I do hold reverence for the days when you you could actually, you know, make $15 profit from selling a, a, a CD or a record. And obviously... The- so I still do have reference, re- reverence for, you know, the times where you could sell a record for $15 and make a profit uh, and then people are complaining about streaming and how you make less money and all this kind of stuff. But you can't fight progress. And at the same time, it's why, why would you want to? So, for instance, I, I've spent um, many really fantastic nights out in Marrickville and starting at South Marrickville and making my way all the way up through Marrickville past, you know, Gasoline Pony, Batch, Grifters, up to, you know, uh, there's a place called Titus Jones and, you know, all these places. And then, and then I've walked back up to Dulwich where I live. And it reminds me exactly of being a kid and starting in East mm. Main yeah. and making my way up to Roselle. And so I want that experience for my kids and they're going to they're gonna have it. It's just not going to be in Balmain. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, we, when we first met, we were talking about, you know, all this, you know, legisl- you know legislative bullshit and bureaucratic bullshit that prevents um, people from having bands at their venues and stuff like that. Those experiences will always exist. It just won't exist in the way that we have had it, or the way that we can, with a, a bit more of a, a bit more clarity, could see would be a better way for it to happen. Mm. But it will happen, and so that's why I will always support all these causes that'll make it easier. But at the same time, I don't feel like it's hopeless. No, great. Which is which is good, you know. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's good you, to keep in mind. And you've touched on one thing there, which uh, is an idea I've been mulling over or brewing on. Oh, uh, which is that. In your description Homebrew of your in. South Marrickville journey, like you mentioned Batch and Grifter and obviously gigs now happen in breweries, which we didn't have breweries before, right? So, like, in some ways, like, the... Yeah, there's a lost, new avenue. That's right. right. And um, I was I, I was interesting on this discussion uh, at the Cricketers Arms because Albo and Darcy were on the panel along with the publican um, who was very shortly going to have his own brewery. And I was like sitting there thinking about it. And I think that I'm, I'm, I actually think this is what one of the things that is, is potentially in the story here. And the thing about it is that Balmain doesn't actually have its own craft beer. And, and which is, but there is a beer a, called Balmain, isn't there? In the same way that someone's decided to stick a brand on something and, yeah. and you know, leverage it in, in that. Um, but if, and what I mean by that is that using, and there's plenty of them, um, Young Henry's you talked about, so even if you pick on Balter or someone, what these places do is they bring in community and allow for an expression of community. And, um, and uh, you know, that's what, what uh, one of the secrets um, of success behind Young Henry's in particular. Because and the, Batch. You know, yeah, Batch is batch, a great Yeah, example. exactly. And, and um, I was thinking about this in terms of how... Um, because what, what craft beer does is express personality. Like that's it allows for the expression of personality, and and um, and you know it's interesting for me in a f- once form of vibrant area like Balmain, where uh, you know something that would actually bring the community together uh, of 
of the nature of the people that we're talking about is yeah. its own local expression of something that's relevant. And oh man, um, they should turn the bloody town hall, the town hall pub, which well, we were talking about earlier, which is just a gym now. Yeah. When I was a kid, that was like the pinnacle of of Balmain pubs. Like you'd go there. It was a really it was you know it was quite a fancy pub. They should turn that into a, a brewery. I, I think it, I, I do believe Albo is the um, current member. We'll see. We'll let's, really let's, he can, let's let's make it a community. Like it's a, it's a council-owned brewery. <laughs> yeah, I that's actually that's a great idea. Yeah, I think it's a great re, great use of public funds. But you know, it's it's interesting. The 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 craft beer analogy is very similar to independent record companies. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And and the the thing that I feel wary about with. Not wary, but I, the thing yeah. that I have observed with craft beer is I, I played at a craft beer festival in Tasmania and I was shocked at how many craft breweries there were and how many how many outfits were doing craft beer. I was like, there's no way that all of these could be sustainable. And then it was made clear to me that a lot of them are, are being bought up by, by, large breweries, yeah. by large breweries. And so it's kind of like in the same way that you have small boutique uh, labels that are all owned by Sony or Warners and stuff like that. Um, anyway, you can cut. You can edit that out. That's, no, no, no. That was, that was more of an aside. No, for no, you. but it's right. It's right. It's like uh, the, 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 there is that um, discussion uh, around you know it, what is independent craft um, and the, well, the motives. We have this. They have a really fierce discussion about this every year at the Arias. What what is an independent record? So there's always an award for the independent yeah record of the year, but. Does it mean that they are completely independent, or if they if they're distributed currently, if you're distributed by a major, you're still independent, right? But are you are you really like if you're in, if you're distributed by a major, it's like you know like that's basically the majority of the, the, the that's the majority of the difficulty of being a record label is distribution, right? Yeah. So yeah. is that is that really an you know, independent label? Yeah. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier about. Uh, the cost to get to a decent level of sound in a venue, if you can recall that discussion, sort of not being once what it was. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that um, I'm interested in your opinion on is there was a time where um, I guess touring a band involved multiple people. Like it's, it sounds like trite but like yeah but 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 in terms of the economics of that now and so forth um uh you know obviously lots of some of my friends are you know used to have more gigs than they they do now and so on um because the economics just don't justify paying everybody and traveling everybody and all the rest of it yeah in terms of um you know just say we're halfway successful with some of the music initiatives and we end up with more venues like bars and pubs doing live music yeah. like is there a sort of um i guess what i'm asking is like you know solo performance duo performance versus big act yeah you know like where are we like is it will the market sustain i guess like um you know larger four, four and five piece Bands, or is it kind of let's build it, rebuild it? You know, like um, like you're saying, if we if if the uh, live music economy became bigger because of government changes, yes, it's there's certain fixed costs that you can't change, right? Yeah, and there's certain things that you you can't, no matter how you know whatever workarounds you try and do, you can't change them. Travel, accommodation, yeah, those are two massive ones. You have to pay your staff. 
like so if you're a solo artist like me I pay all my band I pay my sound guy my tour manager my um, tech um, and all my band guys right so that's a that's a significant cost if you're in a band you share that cost amongst your band but you still have to pay yep. for accommodation and flights and all that stuff so there's certain fixed costs that you can't get rid of um, one thing that they do in England which is makes things a lot easier is and it's because it's a far more established touring market um, and they have big promoters like Live Nation behind sort of running international you know running national kind of yep. touring circuits but one thing that they do is they'll give you a guarantee um, versus a back end so it'll be like you 100% get 500 bucks for this gig um, and you'll get 20% or 80 whatever it is you'll get 20% above if you if you recoup what you've what we've promised you, you'll get twenty percent above yeah. it, and that just makes touring infinitely more viable and budgetable because you can say, okay, well, I know I'm going to get five hundred bucks for all these gigs, and I can make it work. So I, I won't take this person here. Or from my point of view, being a solo artist, I can often just do solo touring, so that makes things easier. Yeah. If you're in a band, it makes it harder. But in Australia, we don't have that sort of system. Yeah. It's basically always a door deal. You go in and you're like. Okay, it's you know twenty bucks on the door, and you split that, and you have no idea walking up what you're going to get. Yeah. From a venue point of view, I completely understand why you would not do anything but a door deal because you're mitigating your risk, right? But this is this is why for a long time, I've, there's, there's lots of there's well, there's not lots, but there's the grants that do exist in Australia for music is usually about recording grants. And I really feel like there's a couple of touring grants um, that APRA do, but there should be more small touring grants. And this this is something I've actually thought a lot about and wrote wrote some pretty in detail um, proposals about. But there, what I think there should be is a series of like tranches, right? So it's you know, say say you get a twenty a twenty grand grant for touring, it should be released in four tranches, five grand each, because it's going to take you at least six or seven tours to build up enough of a fan base that that will actually become an economically viable thing to do in the future, right? It needs to threshold and you need to go back to these places again and again to build up your your fan base. And that's something that doesn't exist in Australia, which I think there should. Which So instead of giving a band a 50 grand grant to go and make a record mm. or even a 50 grand grant to go and do one tour yeah. internationally... Give give somebody fifty grand, but make it spread over ten tours, and that you have to, you know, remit every single tour of those. And I, I would be willing to bet that after subsidising ten tours, that band will will know whether or not they have a commercial product that's going to actually make them a living. You know, that that's something that I feel would be really helpful. Yeah, for like artists. like you know, I, I don't exactly hundreds. I understand, understand the detail of that, but the concept I get, and I like looking forward around some of um, into where some of this grant money is going to go, and knowing the nature of the venue operators that are going to try. There's going to be a education process for venues in how to, which, which is because it's become a lost art form how to book a band. And all yeah, and it's, that's part of what I. I mean, I, this is this is totally going off tangent, and I hadn't haven't thought about this for years. But I actually wrote this whole proposal about this thing because I was going to. Approach um, APRA to get this grant going, where there needs to be a portal as well. Like musicians and venues have so much knowledge that, that, that we could share to up and coming venues or musicians. 
how to you know yeah. cut costs, how to do things right, how to promote how to shows, buy, yeah, you know, channel. like all yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of knowledge out there, but we we for some reason we just we aren't sharing the knowledge to the best of our ability. Like if there was a portal with case studies and and you know video in, video interviews or whatever podcast with touring musicians. I mean, there is so much shit that I learned from touring early on in punk bands, um, you know, right through my career until now about how to make, um, you know, touring not only economically viable but not mentally devastating, you know. Like mental health is a big thing in the entertainment industry at the moment. You know, we have organisations like Support Act supporting... um, Musicians who often don't have superannuation, not just musicians, you know, techs, sound guys, whatever, often don't have superannuation or insurance and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, when they fall on hard times, there's no recourse. There's so much information that could be shared about how to make tours economically viable but also not, you know, mentally harming because it, it can be draining, particularly when you get to an age where you want to start a family and stuff like that. It's 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 a challenge, and there there are lots of artists that have navigated it well and could share all this information. So yeah, well you you know like I mean it's genuinely so it's like you you know you're one of those people, so it's good to so you, far yeah <laughs> yeah no like and I think it's important and um you know at some point I think uh, you can sort of follow up on that conversation with I think we should I'm glad yeah. you reminded me about that yeah. because you know yeah, with well, all this like, funding because could that's be, what could I look at that, that's it. part of why I'm raising it because I look at the numbers right 30 million is okay like you know the city if Sydney's throwing money live music and so forth but I also see a pile up of wasted cash mm. because people don't understand how to execute properly and it's not I'm not having a go I'm just saying that like you can uh, if you, you can, it's like any business. Right? Well, yeah, bureaucrats can, don't necessarily know the best yeah. use for yeah. money for a touring artist. They, the, don't, they don't. That's know. right, and they have, they're not a touring artist. Yeah, and and if you, there's a, an opportunity to kind of have that money be effective, then let's let's try and find a way to make it happen. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things I want to uh, ask you, like in terms of touring, like uh, um, and in terms of what, what's going on in your world, in terms of what's what's next for for, for Josh Pike and um, well, new albums, like what, what? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it now. So I've been in in when was it? It was in 2017 or the end of 2016 and, and the beginning of 2017. I decided to take a break from touring because it was just <clears throat> it was just doing my head in. It'd been 20 years of solid touring. You know, raising kids and all this kind of stuff. It was it was all great, but I just needed a break to kind of, you know, get my head together in a way. And I there was always other pursuits that I wanted to you know engage in that I never had time because I was always like, oh, I'm going to be on tour next month. So I took a couple of years off. Um, and one thing that I was always passionate about was writing kids' books. So I started writing kids' books. And after a fair few knockbacks, which was, you know, very confronting but also instructive, um, I got a, a deal for my first first kid's book, which is called Lights Out Leonard, which is out next month on uh, June the 4th. Um, and then through that I got a second book deal uh, and that's coming out in October and was asked to contribute to another couple of publications. So I've been really focusing on, on writing and kid's books, which has been really... Amazing, and then also I have a studio at home, and I've been doing a lot of stuff for film and TV with the Beach Daz guys, and and various other things for TV. Um, and all that was amazing. And during that period of sort of not necessarily thinking about doing another record, I just was in a 
relaxed state to <laughs> accept the lightning that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and I sort of, without even really knowing, I looked, you know, looked at my sort of file of, of songs and I realised I'd written 20 songs. Um, so I've been refining those and, and the record company signed off on all those tracks. I'm, I'm in the process now of, of actually sort of finishing the record um, and I'm going to go mix it in Portland with a guy called um, Tucker Martin uh, probably in October and then I'll have a record out next year, so very excited. Have you, Portland specifically because of its crafty reputation? Or Absolutely. Just, yeah. <laughs> a, I looked for a producer that was based in Portland because I wanted to go and drink beer. Yeah, well, yeah. I think uh, we're all quite good at coming up with those stories. But that's, <laughs> that's amazing. And in terms of like uh, we, we touched on it earlier, like uh, and, you know, I'm hats off uh, to you, and I mean it's legitimately for, um, you know, taking the initiative with your grant program as well. Like, and I think we had... Gordy maybe would have been a recipient of your grant play. Gordy was a recipient. Your recipient, Alex Leahy, uh, Angie McMahon. Yeah, there's there's been a few. It's been in its sixth year now. Yeah, like, and it just sort of ticks over year on year, does it? And like, yeah, it's a, it's a huge commitment. I mean, I so it started out just literally as a. I, I mean, I was just recognizing that there was a gap in the in the grant market. Um, you know, I've been a I've been a a, a peer. Um, uh, voter, not not a voter. What's a, a peer judge? I've been right. a, a like, peer review judge for various grants through the Oz Council and stuff, and I've I've been a recipient of several grants over the years, and they've made a massive difference. But I just noticed there was a bit of a gap for like just a, a small grant, you know, seven and a half grand, and what there was the biggest gap for was mentorship. So it's all very well for mm. an organisation like APRA or PPCA to give out a grant. It's fucking amazing. It's so great and they do an amazing job and they do their best to offer mentorship but I just I just know. I know how to do tours and, I know, and, I, and it's not – it's very boring stuff, you know. It's like it's not sexy stuff. It's really boring stuff about budgeting and also about like – uh, you know, diversifying and, you know, many fingers in many pies kind of stuff to create a career in Australia as a creative. It's not It's not about just being a musician anymore. It's about diversifying and, and you know, finding well, different yeah, paths, you, are, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I just felt like there was an opportunity. I mean, it was. It comes down to it was as simple as I just thought it was a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, and six years in, it's it's been... It's a it's a big job. There's a couple of hundred entrants to judge personally every year, so I'm in the thick of it right now. I try and break it down to ten a day. I do ten a day for you know as long as it takes. Yeah. Um, and you know it's it's inspirational as well because you, there's a lot of like the first twenty things that I've been listening to would have won in previous years. Mm. You know, like there's a lot of really good music out there, and I guess the, like it comes back to. You know what we were talking about earlier about being an optimist. You know, I I truly believe that even if we all realised that no one was ever going to make another cent from making music, people would still produce excellent music all the time. For me, as an artist, that's a great baseline for hope and positivity. But as a musician that has successfully kind of traversed those challenges. I feel like it's part of my job to try and make it easy for these people to to make a living because I believe that it's incredibly worthwhile more you know more so than a lot of things that people get paid for um, and I believe that most people even if they don't realize that they value art and culture would just miss it so much if it wasn't there and so it's kind of the responsibility of people 
you know, in the know, in inverted commas, to make those things viable and make them make them happen. So, yeah, that's yeah, why I did well, it. Well, as I say, hats off. I think anyone that sort of puts their um, money where their mouth is in the way you're doing um, should get should uh, should be applauded. So I applaud you. Go on then. <laughs> you should have done the slow clap, the cricket clap. <laughs> So, Josh, we've yes. got a standard lay way we like to wrap the podcast, uh, sharing that wisdom. Is it a wrap? Is it, a, is it you doing a wrap? I'll lay down a beat. All right, go. <laughs> you lay down a beat, yeah. <laughs> so, so, tell me now exactly what you think about the favourite book or podcast you've read lately. Oh, that was not a good rap. Yeah, that was terrible. Sorry. Uh, my favourite book or podcast. I, I love This American Life podcast. Yeah, we yeah. listen to that on the road a lot uh, when we're touring. Um, and I loved the um, Teacher's Pet podcast recently. I listened to that a lot. I like true crime podcasts, but in terms of my actual favourite uh, thing at the moment is uh, Murakami, the author, and I've just been reading his book. Uh, it's a trilogy. It's called 1Q84, um, and it's, he's just an incredible writer, Japanese writer, translated to English, and so it makes you wonder how much the the translator has to do with sort of, um, well, translating the text and still making it really poetic and stuff. But yeah, those are my picks at the moment. Very strong and by far and away the most cerebral answer ever given to that question on this podcast. I'm a cerebral guy. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, listeners will be highly attuned to your answer to this. Favourite album or artist right now? Right now, well, I, I'm a, actually, I'll, I would say my favourite artist right now is a band called Big Thief. Um, from America um, Really fascinating backstory Which is worth looking up But just really beautiful Sort of like almost referencing 90s Radiohead And stuff like that But um, very modern uh, And also uh, Sandy And then the, this artist's name is Sandy In brackets Alex G That's my other favourite artist at the moment Nice, nice Well we'll link to that in the show notes um, Now we have been Drinking some delicious pale ale, but uh, mm. um, don't feel compelled to name that as your favourite drink right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, any, any, what's your favourite bevy? Uh, I'm a big single malt whiskey guy, so I used to be a member of the single single malt single malt <laughs> single malt the, the Walt Disney. <laughs> I used to be a member of the Walt Disney Society. No, the single malt whiskey society um, years ago, and I sort of got heavy into um, single malt. And my manager, Greg Donovan. Uh, got into it as, as well and ended up having the biggest private collection of single malt whiskey in the country. So that's been my vibe for a while. I love Japanese whiskies. Um, and um, yeah, I've, got, I've, I've sort of cut back a little bit lately for, for, health, for health reasons. <laughs> but um, yeah, single, single malt whiskey, generally Highland. I do like um, Islay and stuff like that, but um, I, I like the more. Uh, not quaffable, you would say, but like the less smoky, I think is is good. All right, we'll have to get you a guest the guest bartending shift at Baxter's Baxter Inn's whiskey room. That sounds uh, great. Available. Uh, speaking of venues, uh, we've already heard about where you've liked to perform, but any. 
cafes, restaurants, bars that you think? I mean, there are, there are lots. I mean, this is the thing, you know, like, so even in, in Dulletur where I live, there's the general up on Marrickville road, which is a great cafe slash restaurant slash bar. They have a bar at night. Uh, and there's a, there's a couple of great small bars down in Summer Hill now. Um, one's called the Rio and one's called the Temperance Union, Temperance Society, sorry. And the Rio in particular is, is one that has become a favourite with, with me. Great cocktails. Um, yeah, it's really good. I good, like it. There. Good single malt whiskies. Uh, I haven't actually. I'm always there in the afternoon, so I've never been there at night. I, I go, this is a true story. I go there with my kids and my wife in the afternoon before we do the grocery shopping because grocery shopping, I've got to tell you, is a lot more fun if you've had a couple of beers. Yeah, I love it's, it. It's much more fun. And they'll do a milkshake for the kids, but they don't have a blender, so they hand shake it, right? Which is makes it. Kind of cool as well. Uh, sorry, that was at the Temperance. At the at the uh, at the Rio, oh, the Rio. and so oh. the Rio is an old milk bar which is owned by an old Greek guy in in Summer Hill. And so the owners, I don't know who owns it. You you'll probably know, or your listeners will know. But the owners kept the theme of the old Greek um, milk bar, so it looks like a milk bar. They have you know a sort of a modern take on Greek food. Um, great beers, great cocktails, and handshaken milkshakes for kids. Just a great street view over Summer Hill, and then you go across to the IGA and do your shopping with a little bit of a happy, a little bit of a happy days. <laughs> we all find a way to get through life. That's impre- <laughs> that is impressive. That is impressive. Um, um, so big shout out to those guys. Uh, and uh, and lastly, uh, who in the industry are you most inspired by? Now this is, can be answered in terms of hospitality or music in your case. So, well, I guess I don't I don't know a lot about the hospitality industry in terms of people. Um, you know, apart from Hemi's and stuff like that, I mean, I've I've enjoyed the venues that he's created, but I, but in terms of the music industry, I must say that I, I, you know, and recently more so than ever, I'm I'm really inspired by my manager Greg Donovan, who I've been managed by for over ten years. But you know, in the time that I've known him, he's gone from being a manager to owning a record label and owning a publishing company, and he's really expanded his sort of small business um, into a into a big business. Uh, in a really intelligent way and always embracing technology and sort of innovation, you know, streaming, navigating the whole, you know, streaming world, um, the whole digital kind of revolution. So, yeah, I think Greg's been a, a big inspiration for me. Wonderful. And I think on a great note to end on, you know, like I think um, one of the things that uh, has come out of this and our discussions over the time is how, you know, creativity exists. If you, if you look at things as creativity as opposed to within a vertical of hospitality or music, mm. uh, it sort of changes the perspective on things and it just, just opens, opens um, up opportunities. I, I think yeah. everybody should, should really give more credence to their own creativity and sort of value their own creativity and not be embarrassed about it or, you know, think of themselves as non-creative, you know. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be good at drawing or good at music or good at art or good at you know, sculpture or whatever in that sort of traditional creative field. But creative thinking is is the only way forward in whatever industry you're in, you know. And so I think people really need to open their their minds up to the fact that everybody is creative, you know, and we should all value our own creativity much, much more. Let's drink to that. Thanks, Josh. Cheers. Michael, thoughts on your chat with Josh? 
Yeah, well, I spent quite a bit of time with him, as you may imagine, trying to pull together a fundraising gig and mobilise committees and stuff. But uh, getting to chat to him specifically about some of his work was great. And also, I liked his thoughts on creativity generally and everyone's a creative and we don't value it enough. And, mm. you know, because I've often looked at, like, hospitality and I argue this that it's just an expression of creativity really um, totally not in the traditional I'm painting a picture I'm playing a song way but uh, yeah um, and um, so that sort of uh, you know resonated I'd say and you know yeah. that sort of played out with things like the Mary's collab uh, sorry the um, Henry Young Henry's collaboration beer yeah um, stuff like that yeah yeah um, and then the other thing I thought about is it's just clear it's one of these people who's reached a certain stage and is just accustomed to giving back so beyond the lobbying stuff there's his work in the indigenous literacy literacy foundation yeah. i think and also with mentorship of young musicians and his grant. own grant yeah. yeah 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 what about you oh i just think the uh time investment from someone like him who's obviously got a pretty exceptional network who um could be sitting back doing not much but actually is out there trying to push for something that he's clearly passionate about and, and passionate about seeing reintegrated into Sydney, um, not just nightlife, not night, nighttime economy, but the, the, the broader community, I think. Um, so it's, it's, I guess it's inspirational to, to listen to people like him who are out there having a crack and um, trying to make positive change. And there's obviously been a few things recently that have, have been yeah, compelled right. by that kind of activity. Yeah, yeah like and since we did that recording, uh, we... You know, the review of lockout has actually been announced, and yeah. which we didn't think necessarily was going to happen. Yeah, and huge. so it does sort of show that over a period of time, if you uh, get people together and people are committed to seeing change, you can make things happen. So I guess uh, we'll see how that unfolds out um, in, in the next uh, next few months. And uh, who is next on the podcast? Well, I'm very excited by our next guest, yep. uh, which you've teed up, um, which is uh, Neil Perry. Um, Old mates. We go way right. back. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, so. to about 20 minutes before I uh, asked him to come on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so looking forward to that. I, I don't know if, if there's a chef with a bigger reputation in this country than mm. him. And... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, does his reputation match the individual? We'll wait and see. Nice.